Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. Hi there, and welcome back to OOF, Right in the Childhood. I'm Jen, and every other week I tell you the history of a Disney animated feature film, then watch it for the first time in decades, and commentate on it. This week we're talking about 1977's The Rescuers, Politics in Motion. Because The Rescuers and The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh came out the same year, we can skip a lot of the Disney history, but this film really starts the ball rolling on the drama of the next few films, so that gives us some stuff to dive into. Marjorie Sharp was an English author that, between the years of 1930 and 1978, wrote over 50 novels, plays, and short stories. She was also a prodigious article writer for Harper's Bazaar, the Saturday Evening Post, Encyclopedia Britannica, and other periodicals of the day. Most of her works were social commentaries of the day, and she intended them for adults to discuss romance, sex, and family with a sharp sense of humor and metaphors. Inspired deeply by A.A. A. Milne, which I find really interesting because these two films are so close together, she began writing about animals who could tackle political issues without the shackles of personhood. Her early stories featured Mr. Hamble's bear, a large stuffed bear whose popularity overshone that of its owner, which many find a direct correlation to A.A. A. Milne's loss of control of Winnie the Pooh's impact. She then began writing a novel about mice whose job it was to improve the lives of prisoners. In her first novel, two mice, Miss Bianca and Bernard, are dispatched to find a Norwegian poet who has been falsely imprisoned. This novel, titled The Rescuers, was intended for adult audiences, but due to the anthropomorphic mice, children soon began to fill its allure. Soon, it became seen as a children's novel, but Sharp, not wanting to lose control of her creation, decided that Bianca and Bernard had more to say, and not just to children. She continued writing The Rescuers books, tackling more and more issues, helping more prisoners, and she's quoted as saying, Only a child who reads well can fully enjoy these books, for their subtlest appeal is that of language itself, a delight in words and the rhythm of words for their own sake. It was this series that Walt Disney acquired their film rights to in 1962. He began with the tale of the Norwegian poet being held by a totalitarian regime far in the north. But after beginning the script, he found the film had way too much political influence than he was comfortable with, 
Considering that this was less than 20 years after Disney had made propaganda for the United States for World War II, I find it a little ironic. But he did say, in the 1950s, that he intended to never take part in propaganda again, so this might have been a little too close for his liking. After all, 1962 being smack dab in the middle of the Cold War and the fortress to the north resembling Siberia, I can see how he was afraid of the issues it could bring up. He shelved the project where it wasn't touched until the early 1970s. In 1970, the animation team at Disney was going through some changes. Originally, the animation department had been staffed by nine men that Walt Disney had hired himself, colloquially named the Nine Old Men. They did almost all of the main animation for the studio, only hiring new animators for cleanup animation. In 1970, the studio decided it should increase its output, so it started hiring junior animators who would be responsible for animating the studio's less intricate pieces. In doing this, they created an A-team and a B-team. The A-team worked on what the studio saw would be their big-budget films, while the B-team would do more simple animation jobs. One artist hired by this division that would play a major role going forward was Don Bluth. He'd worked for the studio for a couple of years during the making of Sleeping Beauty, but he returned full-time in 1971 and quickly became the star of Animation Team B. Team B began writing a story focused on the most recent Rescuers book, called Miss Bianca in the Antarctic, which focused on Bianca and Bernard rescuing a polar bear. They were fully into that creation with a singing polar bear and everything until their songwriter started having headaches and becoming forgetful. When it was discovered he had a brain tumor, the project was scrapped in 1975. Meanwhile, animation had wrapped up on Robin Hood and the A-Team was looking for a new story to tell. They started on a script that adapted a story about the Barbary Apes on Gibraltar, which, this is the first time hearing of this, have some kind of prophecy attached that as long as there are apes on Gibraltar, the British will retain control over the area. And that's a lot to put on some monkeys, y'all. Anyway, during the Second World War, and this is true, Adolf Hitler knew about the prophecy and decided that he was going to kill all the monkeys because that was the easiest way to capture Gibraltar. And that's the happy story that Ken Anderson was developing in 1973. Meanwhile, Don Bluth was leading the young animators to rewrite the Rescuers for the third time. This time, they adapted the second book, titled Miss Bianca, in which Bianca and Bernard are rescuing an eight-year-old girl. The time came for the studio to choose a movie to put into production. They were faced with a movie where two mice rescue a child, or a film where Adolf Hitler tries to murder a bunch of monkeys. And for reasons that seem really obvious to me, they went with The Rescuers. Bluth was kept on as the lead animator as they developed the story, changing the Duchess in the first book to Cruella de Vil, and then to a new character who was a caricature of one of the animator's wives. They divorced soon after. Some technical advancements had been made to the xerography technique that Disney had been using for over a decade. This time, instead of using strong black lines, the animators could now create copies of their cells with light gray outlines. This served to give the resulting animation a more softened look. In the end, the film was completed for $7.5 million, or $32.3 million today, and it marked the end of three of Disney's old men's careers as they finally entered retirement. The studio released the film first as a double feature to a nature film in June of 1977, then later with Mickey's Christmas Carol. The critical reception was extraordinary. According to John Colley, who wrote an article on the films of Don Bluth, it was seen as the best Disney film since Mary Poppins, signaling what many critics hoped was a new golden age of Disney films. The Los Angeles Times said it was 
quote, the best feature-length animated film from Disney in a decade or more, end quote. And the New York Times said that though the film didn't, quote, belong in the same category as the great Disney cartoon features, it's a reminder of a kind of animated entertainment that has become all but extinct, end quote. On the other hand, Gene Siskel gave the film two and a half stars, saying its themes were forgettable and that it was just an adventure story. TV Guide gave it three stars, saying that Disney's track record was weakening. But theatergoers tended to agree with the positive critical responses. By the time The Rescuers finished its run, it had grossed $48 million worldwide, or over $207 million today. It did particularly well internationally, where it outsold Star Wars in France and became the highest-grossing movie of all time in Germany. And usually, that's where I stop with these movies, as the home box office isn't quite what I want to focus on until we get into that part of the history. But The Rescuers is one of several movies in the 1990s that was met with a great deal of controversy when it was released onto VHS. The Rescuers was released into home media on January 5th, 1999. And three days later, the studio issued an emergency recall on the tape. I'm not really sure how it came out, if a parent paused the tape at the wrong spot or what, but 3.4 million copies of the film had a fully topless woman in one of the windows as the main characters fly through New York City. The image is a little blurry, but it's definitely a completely nude torso, nipples and all. The studio re-released the movie in March of that year, but my family somehow had an original copy from the first three days. And yeah, I was 16 in 1999, so I immediately went looking for that on the copy we owned. Interestingly enough, though, I remember the other controversies from the 90s. I don't remember a lot of hubbub around this particular recall. The scene is really quick and virtually unseeable at regular speed. Regardless of the controversy, it remains a well-loved film. It has an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it became the first Disney animated movie ever to have a sequel made. So the question is, when watched today, does it hold up to the adoration it's gotten, or does it fall short of its memory? Stay tuned after this short break, and I'll watch it and break it down. This week's cover art was provided by Linz. She draws characters over sheet music over on her Instagram. I've linked to it in the show notes so you can go check her out. I'm always looking for new fan art for episodes. If you have art you'd like to appear on an episode cover, head over to oofmychildhood.com fanart and fill out the form. It never costs you anything and you retain control of your art. I just want people to see it. We start out with a watercolor of a paddle boat. In fact, the first scenes appear to be animated in front of a canvas, which is kind of fascinating. A little girl sneaks out of a boat and, while being watched by alligators, drops a bottle into the water. The bottle with a message that says help travels through several still paintings throughout the credits. It kind of seems like they just had different artists paint water and waves and then added a bottle when it made sense. As the bottle washes up on the shore of New York City, three mice climb out of a boot and look at it with confusion. We then go to the United Nations with great trumpet fanfare, and this one scene might be the most integrated Disney scene up to this point. Delegates stand looking at the board, and mice crawl out of their briefcases, purses, and sporins, and make their way to a meeting room where they all sit behind matchboxes. They face a flag featuring Euripides' mouse, who you can see taking a thorn out of a lion's paw. 
According to Aesop's fables, this is a mouse who, after being released by the benevolence of a lion, helped the lion remove a thorn from its paw. At the end of the very short story, she says, You laughed when I said I would repay you. Now you see that even a mouse can help a lion. This is the founder of the Rescue Aid Society. Yes, in Aesop's fable, the mouse's pronouns are she, her. They sing their theme song, which is super catchy. Outside, the janitor sings along, and a fancy mouse makes her way to the hungry matchbox. She's obviously the hot item because all the male mice want to look at her. The mouse scouts bring out our green bottle, and the janitor clumsily brings in a broken comb as a ladder. He climbs up and stops. There are 13 steps on the ladder, and he's superstitious. Finally, getting the message out of the bottle, the janitor falls into the bottom. So okay, this international meeting of mice was called because they were certain someone was in trouble, but they hadn't read the message yet? Fancy Mouse reads the message that a girl named Penny from Morningside Orphanage is in trouble and then asks to be sent on the mission. This is unheard of, of course. She's a lady and ladies might faint and die or something. In fact, the Chairman Mouse says that it's not a man's world anymore, so Miss Bianca can go, as long as she's escorted by a man. He asks for volunteers and every man in the room wants to go, but Bianca wants Bernard, the janitor, to go with her. Possibly because he's the only guy that didn't leer at her when she came in late. Bianca and Bernard get off a bus and look at a map. Morningside Orphanage is like seven blocks away, but Bianca says they should take a shortcut through the zoo. Bernard objects because zoos tend to be full of predators. After going in, it's dark, so Bernard decides to check out the danger. There's a snarl from the darkness and the two mice dash out. Bianca asks Bernard what he did to make the lion mad. They go off, arm in arm, for the seven blocks that's like 70 miles for mice. They make it to the orphanage and find a box that's full of Penny's effects. As they investigate, they wake a cat wearing spectacles and a scarf. The elderly cat says, please leave. I don't want to be fired and I'm too old to chase you. Old Rufus says Penny ran away. He saw her sitting on her bed, super sad, and he talked to her. She says it was adoption day, but the family who looked at her chose a red-headed girl who was prettier than her and I'm tearing up. This is rough. Rufus said that no one could be prettier than her. He says, Faith is like a bluebird you see from afar, and a longer poem that's really pretty, saying that hope exists, but you can't touch it. Penny shows him her bear, which looks a lot like Winnie the Pooh. She gives Rufus ginger snaps and carries him around like small children carry animals. And that was the last time Rufus saw her. The mice don't think she ran away, and ask Rufus to think harder. He remembers that a, quote, trashy lady tried to give Penny a ride. He says that trashy lady owns a pawn shop, so they head off to find her. As they leave, Rufus says, Two little mice, what could you do? Rude. They arrive at Medusa's pawn shop and look through the window. There's a half price on diamond sign and an NRA badge on the cage. I wonder what that's saying about the NRA. They find a children's book with Penny's name on it, and the cuckoo clock startles them. Then the phone. A woman, who could only be described as white trash in motion, comes out and answers the phone. She has red hair, more blue eyeshadow that is on a palette, bright lipstick, and long, spindly eyelashes. Medusa's talking to someone named Snoops and is pissed because the child's been sending messages in a bottle. Then she conveniently says, I'm coming right now to Devil's Bayou. Bianca and Bernard decide to stow away in her suitcase, but Medusa doesn't believe in packing. She just shoves everything into her suitcase and goes. Bianca is left dangling from a girdle strap. Medusa drives exactly like Corella Deville, so they didn't change that. As she rounds a corner, her suitcase falls off the car and the mice are left in the street. 
In the next scene, they're at the airport running to catch a plane. Miss Bianca has overpacked because of course she has. They make their way across a helipad and to Albatross Air. Their flight leaves at 6.45 and it's 7. Bianca's not concerned at all because planes are always late. As she says that, Flight 13 radios in and Bernard's having nothing to do with that. After some static doubt cursing, they give him permission to land and an albatross flies in with the Air Force song in the background. He misses the building and then has an, um, rough landing. Orville will be ready to go to the Devil's Bayou in five minutes. And okay, they were 15 minutes late for a flight in which there were only two passengers, and I do think Orville would have waited. They seat themselves in a sardine can, and Bernard reads him the flight checklist, which includes, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's gotta give you good feelings. Flying through the city, this is the scene in which the naked woman used to appear in a window, if you're wondering. After running a red light, Bianca assures Bernard that she does it all the time, and they're off for a nice peaceful flight down to Louisiana, and I'm absolutely sure there's a current that will carry a message in a bottle from a bayou in Louisiana up to New York City. I'm sure there is. Absolutely. Bernard has a book on the Devil's Bayou that says it's dangerous, but Bianca doesn't care. She snuggles up to him and falls asleep. Bernard's clearly not used to being this close to women, but he likes it. Next, we see a super spooky, definitely haunted bayou, and in Louisiana, that's saying something. On the paddle boat, Penny is sneaking away into the forest. As she makes a break for it, the boat's lights come on, and Medusa leads the two alligators, Nero and Brutus, out and sends them to track Penny. She has a jalopy of a jet ski outside. Snoop's is super bookish, and I wonder how they fell in together. They set off fireworks that set Orville's tail feathers on fire, and the mice fall out. Luckily, they have an umbrella that works as a parachute. Two southern mice see Orville falling from the sky. Ellie Mae tells Luke to help, but he's drinking moonshine so he can't be bothered. Henceforth, he shall be known as Drunkard Mouse. There's more alcohol in this one scene than in previous Disney canon up to this point. They help Bianca and Bernard out of the bayou and force alcohol down Bernard's throat. Orville decides to get the heck out of there and in the process gets sucked into the jalopy jet ski. Cartoons don't die, we see here. The mice see alligators carrying Penny and her teddy bear out of her hiding place. The country mice send Bernard and Bianca on a leaf with Evan Rude, the dragonfly, as its power source. They say they'll gather the neighbors to help. Evan Rude is great at boat driving until they get lost in the mist. Then they're caught between alligators. Bianca falls off the leaf boat and they have to rescue her. Luckily, they find a paddle boat just as they come up from their incident. Evan Rude is exhausted, but they make their way to the boat. The alligators drop Penny at Snoop's feet. You can see the Don Bluth design in Penny. If you compare her to Anne-Marie of All Dogs Go to Heaven, they could be sisters. Medusa roars up and asks Snoops why he's letting the little girl escape. Snoops blames the alligators. Medusa wants to know why Penny can't find the diamond called the Devil's Eye. She's obsessed with this diamond in a way that literally handfuls of other gems can't satisfy. For reasons. She's decided that the next time the tide is out, she's going to throw Penny down the hole and make her stay until she comes back with the diamond or she drowns, whichever happens first. The alligators walk past the mice and smell Bianca's perfume, not the mice. This results in them chasing the mice into an organ where they hide in the pipes. One alligator plays the organ to make the mice pop out of the organ, and I'm sure there's a reason that this boat has a full organ that they can destroy with no problem. Medusa's mad about the noise, so she comes in and beats one of the alligators and proceeds to shoot at mice because you can shoot mice with a shotgun and that works. They get out of the boat. Bianca's ready to kill Medusa, but Bernard is disheartened. 
They're just little mice. What can they do? As Penny readies for bed, Medusa calls up. Auntie Medusa wants to talk to her. She pretends to like Penny while she removes all of her makeup and eyelashes. She tells Penny she wants her to find the diamond, and Penny asks if she'll take her back to the orphanage so she can get adopted, to which Medusa replies, Adopted? What makes you think anyone would want a homely little girl like you? There are words for Medusa, but I keep trying to avoid the explicit content on this, but imagine what I'm thinking. Penny goes up, and this beautiful song plays about there being a future for her. It's like the saddest version of The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. Orphans are just heartstring pullers. As she goes to her room, please notice that she has a drawing of what she hopes her mom and dad will be on the wall and try not to cry. Before going to sleep, she prays for the kids in the orphanage and that someone will find her a message in the bottle because running away is not working. Bianca and Bernard come in and tell her they're here to help. She says, didn't you bring someone bigger with you? Like the police? They want to leave that night, but Brutus and Nero are out and about. They need a cage. They see the elevator and decide to trap them. They make fun of Medusa for a while. They decide to steal the swampmobile slash jalopy jet ski and set off the fireworks in Medusa's bedroom because that definitely won't lead to death. But I mean, I think the audience is rooting for severe burns by now. They send Evan Rude to get Ellie Mae, but he's trapped in a bottle by bats and can't get to her. At the swamp house, Ellie Mae has gathered the swamp folk to help. Foreshadowing Turtle says, if you don't get here soon, they'll put her back in the black hole. So the next morning, they lead Penny to the black hole, and Medusa takes Penny's teddy bear and says she'll never see him again if she doesn't bring the diamond back. They lower her down into the cave, and it's terrifying and dark. It used to be a pirate cave, as evidenced by the pirate skeleton down there. There's a hole where the water comes in, and Penny's afraid to go there. Bernard says he'd hide a diamond down there. He gets trapped by the water for a moment, but is rescued by Bianca. The mice look around a skull for a moment before Penny's lantern lights up a diamond inside. The diamond is too large to fit through the eye socket, which makes you wonder how it got there. Maybe through the jaw? Medusa says she needs to get the diamond or she'll never see daylight again. And okay, Medusa, I know you're evil, but if the small child you've been torturing finally finds the thing you've been torturing her to find, maybe bring her up and come back the next tide. It seems like this hole is only empty for about 30 minutes at a time. If you want the diamond, that's the best way to get it. Drowning an orphan who knows where it is, is the worst way. Penny uses the pirate sword to leverage the skull up and open its jaw to pull the diamond out. As someone who's worked with skulls before, there's not a skull in the world that you can't just open the jaw of. Anyway, Penny gets the diamond and Medusa and Snoops fight about what to do with a big freaking diamond. Evanrude escapes the bats by flying down the stovepipe and dyeing himself black. We have clearly not passed that point yet. Drunkard Mouse gives him a drop of moonshine and that jump starts his motor. And the swamp folk charge. I feel like the design of these swamp folk was definitely inspired by Ken Anderson's obsession with the Song of the South. Meanwhile, back at the boat, Medusa has pulled a gun on a child. A child! Oof. Right in the childhood. She's holding Penny and Snoops at gunpoint while backing out the door. Bianca and Bernard set a tripwire and then trick the gators into the elevator cage. Ellie Mae puts dynamite in the end of Medusa's shotgun, which somehow doesn't kill everyone. They set off fireworks in the boat as Drunkard Mouse pours out the last of his moonshine into the tank to get it started. Medusa water skis on her gator for a moment before being plowed into a smokestack as she sobs about her diamond. 
Back at the Rescue Aid Society, they're watching TV, talking about Penny finding the Devil's Eye and it being in the Smithsonian. But the big story is that Penny has been adopted. She finally has her mom and dad. Just as everyone's cheering, Evan Rude flies in with a note for Bernard. It says someone else is in trouble. Bernard says the Rescue Aid Society will need some more volunteers for this mission, but Bianca volunteers him. It's Friday the 13th, and they're going to go help people. They take off on Orville in a snowstorm with more than a little help from Evanrude and fly off into the sunset, ready to help another person. The Rescuers is really political. Really. It seems that the studio started that ball rolling with Robin Hood, which, as I mentioned with Eli and Melissa, is a very political story. But this is a different kind of message. Instead of talking about standing up to tyrants and making sure the people are taken care of, the rescuers focuses on the roles of women in society. Throughout the film, Bianca is reminded that women weren't welcome in her role not that long ago, but now it's okay. Bernard bends over backwards to be a gentleman for her, but she's really not that concerned with being a lady. She runs red lights, thinks flying recklessly is fun, and fighting alligators is just another day at the office. I was sitting and thinking about this, and I'm sure I'm going to ruffle some feathers here, but I think Miss Bianca is the first real feminist character in the Disney canon. I've been watching the progression of these characters, and we've gone from characters who cook and clean and wish for a prince to a really impressive woman who saves a little girl. It's been a slow progression from Duchess, the single mother who tells Thomas O'Malley where he can stick his opinions of her having kids, to Maid Marian, who sword fought and helped overthrow a tyrant, to Miss Bianca. But it's clear that women's roles were changing during the 70s by the characters from this era, and Miss Bianca is the poster mouse for women's lib. Way to go, Bianca! But what do you think? Is Miss Bianca our first feminist, or is there someone I'm overlooking? Is The Rescuers a trove of beautiful memories, even if they are steeped in politics, or is it a constant reminder of how terribly people treat kids? Let me know on my social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at OofMyChildhood. If you'd like to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, those ratings and reviews affect almost every other podcatcher. If the app you're using right now has a rating system, please consider rating and reviewing there as well. I also have a Patreon page where you can contribute monetarily to the podcast. For just a dollar every month, you get an ad-free version of the regular episodes one day early. And for $5 a month, you get a bonus episode that discusses the history and commentary of other childhood favorites. This month, I'm talking about a movie that I have a lot of questions about why my parents showed it to me. 1982's The Secret of Nim. Patrons also get a say in what bonus episodes I'm making for the future, so if you want more of my rabbit hole research, that's the place to go. I also have single bonus episodes available at oofmychildhood.com if you don't want to commit to a monthly subscription. You can also find mugs, aprons, and t-shirts on the website. My theme music was composed and played by Sean Rudolph of Let Music Be. For more information on that studio, you can visit their website at letmusic.be or check the show notes for an easy link. You can find transcripts for each movie episode on my website, and if you check out my YouTube channel, I have captioned video versions of each episode as they're published. I do my best to provide YouTube videos and transcripts at the same time as each podcast episode is released, but if this one isn't up yet, you can always check on my website for an update and a link to the appropriate video. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you come back each week to discuss Disney through modern eyes. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me. 
I release a new episode every Monday through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many, many other podcatchers. So until next time, keep the magic alive. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.